I want to be stereotyped. I want to be classified. Every day, Americans are bombarded with hundreds of messages suggesting that the good life is attainable through the goods life by making lots of money and spending it on products that claim to make us happy, loved, and esteemed. On the news shows, we hear a near-constant refrain from economists and politicians about the importance of consumer spending and economic growth. And around $150 billion are spent most years to embed consumer messages in every conceivable space, from TV shows and websites to public bathrooms and escalator handrails. Lately, marketers have even been paying actors to drop sales pitches into conversations in bars and city parks. But commercialization and consumerism also reach deeper, worming their way into people's psyches and encouraging them to organize their lives around higher salaries and owning more stuff. Unfortunately, this can come at a high price for the well-being of both people and the planet. Research consistently shows that the more that people value materialistic aspirations and goals, the lower their happiness and life satisfaction, and the fewer pleasant emotions they experience day to day. Right now I sit around pretending that I'm busy. How do you pull that off? I always look annoyed. <laughs> yeah, when you look annoyed all the time, people think that you're busy. <laughs> think about it. <laughs> Like Mr. Wilhelm gave me one of those little stress dolls. <laughs> All right. Back to work. Don't be serious when I say my bank weighs a ton and then some. No kidding. Math, science, music, history, English, IT, business, art, and that is only half. Holy crap. Too much homework, too much homework. Hey everyone, welcome back to 500years.org podcast. Today is May 27th, 2016, and today we're going to talk about busybody consumerist conformist. What made me start thinking about this is that in my well-to-do neighborhood, I noticed over the past year that the number of swimming pools being put in has just gone completely crazy. So whereas maybe I had one or two neighbors that had swimming pools, now there's probably about 10 or, or, or more and at least two ongoing swimming pool projects. And the odd thing is, it's because I have nothing against swimming pools. I think swimming pools are great. I like to go swimming every day at the pool that we have that's a 10-minute walk down the street. The thing is, is that these pools are enormously expensive. They usually run about $70,000 to put one in. And as far as I can tell, I haven't seen a single person swimming in them. Now, my neighbors all have some other things that are very similar. That's, that's similar to each other, but very dissimilar to me. Most of them have jobs where they go off to work. They usually, the whole family is up at around 5 o'clock in the morning to prepare for school. Both parents work 
full time. The kids go to school and the kids have tons of scheduled activities. So all of this busyness that they put upon themselves has prevented them from actually using the swimming pool. And the irony is, in my view, that the second income that they need to afford the pool is exactly what keeps everyone out of the house and from using the pool. So it seems to be more important to have this little opulent piece of consumerism that they can enjoy for a few hours on the weekend maybe at the expense of everyone going to work and then also the kids going to school. If they didn't have this desire they could probably easily alleviate the $70,000 expense, which is probably more than the salary of one of the two people going to work all day. Now, I, I am often busy myself, and I often like to be busy. But what I see, what seems to be for some people, is that to be acceptably busy is an imperative for every waking minute of the day. And doing something like filling it up with a job, which I know a lot of people, of course, have to do this, but having to fill it up with a, with a job seems like a legitimate amount of thing to do in order to appear busy, legitimately busy. If you were not to do that and you were to say, well, let's, let's consume less and let's be less busy with things that we don't like, I, I wonder if people would either feel bad or if they would sort of suffer a, you know, a people looking down on them, whether they're friends or their family or their neighbors, for, you know, being lazy and unbusy. And one of the things about being busy is that it's a great way to not have to make a decision, to not have to think about your priorities, and to generally be thoughtless in life. Because once you're busy, once you say, well, I'm at work, and I'm at work looking busy, then I'm occupied, and now I don't have to make any tough decisions on my priorities. To be legitimately busy is really what people desire, and legitimacy comes from having busy activities that seem to be the same as everyone else, which is conformity. So the work cycle is just too oddly identical for every single person. The, that same pattern of the five days per week for the exact same 10 hours scheduled at the exact same time doesn't really make sense when you think about it, except that we have this conforming work schedule put upon us and deemed to be legitimate. The busybody conformist seems to be the sort of perfect match of attributes that apply to this behavior. And that means it's everything from insisting that everybody goes to work for the same 50 hours and goes to school and does other activities, be they organized sports or extracurricular classes or latchkey, that all sort of say to the child, you are now acceptably busy. The other thing that goes in with the busybody conformist that I see is unneeded consumerism. So like these people who are constantly putting in swimming pools, they are completely disregarding their sense of time and their availability of time and instead sort of delegating or pushing that could be pleasure of having free time, unoccupied time into, you know, cramming it into a little bit of consumerism, regardless of the expense. One of the great ways you can see that being busy is a way to not make decisions or not be conscious about what you're doing 
is in people who love to work in crisis mode. If you are constantly putting out fires, you never really have to think about what you could be doing to add value. You always just have this crisis that you have to solve immediately. And I spent years working that way where it was always, you know, constantly behind have to make deadlines. And so I could thoughtlessly just grind through my work without joy and without without thought, but always felt like it was both legitimate and I was doing the right thing, even though what I was really doing was avoiding decisions. And you probably can meet many people who work in a constant state of crisis. You might also know other people who I absolutely dread having any kind of free time whatsoever. We have uh, neighbors in our, our neighborhood who, besides going to work, literally at the first thing on Saturday morning, they are out doing yard work for the entirety of the weekend even though there's not enough yard work to do for that long. Like just how many times can you dig up your flowers or weed your beds and still call it genuine? I have a relative who, if he wakes up in the morning and doesn't get to mow the lawn on Saturday, and this is after working, you know, 50 hours a week and doing the commute and everything, then he almost seems severely depressed. So the best thing that could, he could ever imagine is waking up at 7 o'clock on Saturday morning and the toilet being broken because now he's got a legitimate activity to keep him busy and free from being alone with his mind. You may also have relatives who, like during Thanksgiving dinner, before the last person has you know even finished their meal, the people all you know get up and rush to the kitchen to do the dishes and to make sure that they are legitimately contributing to to the evening uh, by joylessly, you know, they're still even chewing their food, but they are around the sink doing dishes. Looking busy at work is has been a long time activity for people who, you know, work in the cube farm or or anything else. It doesn't you know it doesn't matter at the end of the day if they have produced or not produced. It's only looking busy and being there for that time. I've noticed that my own employees, when they first come on, sometimes have a bit of stress because we have no looking busy requirement. Since everybody works at home and out of sight, the only thing they have to be measured upon is what the actual workload they do, you know, what they do and what their output is. And some people who, if they're moving from a place where they had to look busy, can find this very stressful. In the clip, we heard uh, the Seinfeld not, not not Jerry Seinfeld, but his friend George, talk about how he looks busy at work, and that's just to look annoyed. And that's actually quite funny, because what we know is that being legitimately busy probably means being uncomfortable and not happy. Now, school, of course, is the great, both, both a, a great example of making kids be busy for the sake of being busy, as well as the great fostering mechanism that teaches people that we must be legitimately busy and conforming. So it's sort of dually sad that we that we put them in a place to make them feel and look busy. And then even afterwards, whether they have a the sport team or the latchkey or the extracurricular activity that we always have to sign them up to have something, you know, to have them be busy so that they are not allowed any free time on their own to be alone with their thoughts or to be their own free agent. And I also think that some parents like the idea of homework because it legitimizes the time in the evenings. 
So just this is just a thought, and it's only probably some parents and only some kids. But how, what a great thing to have an activity which might burn an hour or two, which is not something that the child might enjoy, but instead is a legitimate busybody activity that was sanctioned by the authority of the teacher. So you don't even have to think about if the homework is any good or if it's doing any value. All you got to know is that it was prescribed by an authority and it's keeping the child legitimately busy and probably also keeping a frown on his face. Being busy with homework also keeps the kids off the screen. And a popular thing now with parenting is to have screen limits which is limiting the amount of time that your child is either in front of the iPad, the computer, the video game console, or the television. Now, as I unschool and or homeschool my kids, this is kind of a serious concern because the kids will spend upwards of you know eight hours a day stuck on the screens doing what they prefer to do. And of course, what they're doing is very interesting. They're playing, they're building stuff in Minecraft or in Terraria, or they're learning stuff on YouTube or they're writing, you know, or they're doing just some kind of activity that they're very much engaged in. Now, what's sad is if you already have a kid that's going to school, and we recently have met some of these people who's, you know, going to school and then has the homework burden and has the latchkey burden to all of a sudden worry about them getting screen time uh, seems kind of silly in my, my point of view, especially since in like when Addie, my daughter, did go to school, they only had half hour of computer time per week and I recently heard on my Singularity Bros guys that they interviewed a teacher, not on air, but they interviewed a teacher and the teacher doesn't, they don't permit, and this is in Massachusetts, uh, any computers during the school day whatsoever. So not even as a planned educational activity. And if you think about school in its purported capacity to prepare kids for, for adult life, uh, most adults who who have a sort of knowledge worker job, you know, be it in an office or in sales or marketing or what have you, are probably on their computers for eight hours a day themselves. So, not you know, it, it'd almost be embarrassing to say yes, my my school school child uh, gets even less than four hours a day of screen time. Anyway, that was my point of view. So then we go to college. And obviously, when a kid turns 17, 18, and is looking to transition out of high school, college is, you know, of course, the prescribed course, because that's what we've been telling ourselves. That's, you know, the whole myth of you need this degree, the signal to get a job. But it also is just a tremendous way to be legitimately busy, because it's like you just pay for it. And now you get this solid chunk of where I'm going to be busy 40 hours a week plus my homework time doing something that will keep me legitimately busy. And I, I have to imagine some parents and some students think about this this way, that they know that it's just an automatic way to use a lot, a lot of time without letting the, 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 the person have their own free agency and be alone with their thoughts. I think vacations can work this way too, in both a couple ways. It's for many people, the vacation might be the only time that they allocate uh, without guilt time to be free agents and, and, and alone with, you know, and make decisions for themselves that, that make them happy. Uh, they probably also eventually feel guilty after they've been on vacation for too long. And then there's probably some people who have to fill their vacations with arbitrary activities. 
again, to say like, I'm here, I'm paying for it. Let's figure out a way to be busy. You know, so I'm going to uh, schedule this tour or schedule this class or what have you. Also, I see people using errands, fucking errands, as a way to burn up their weekends. And we had friends once that would spend most of all day Saturday going around to various stores buying things. And then Sunday, they went to the various stores to return a lot of the merchandise that they bought. But they really could not feel good about their Saturday or Sunday if they did not fill it up with errands. And I know errands have to be done, but really, there's you know do them during the week. Give yourself that time to to not be not be busy. I also wonder if some people fear retirement because they know they will have to figure out what to do on their own. My dad was one of these people. Uh, he did end up retiring just because he was too tired from work. But he really thought like, what am I going to do? Am I just going to sit here and smoke and drink? and watch television, which was about as creative as the man could be. But he was fearing having to retire because he wouldn't have that massive thing take up his day. So I I think, I'm guessing that a lot of people have massive guilt for having free time and for not being legitimately busy. And I know this was thrust upon me, and it was a obsession of mine for probably 10, 15 years until I finally came to the conclusion that I wanted to wrestle back my time and I wanted to think about being busy versus, you know, being valuable or being a free agent in different ways. The the person who goes to work or even the couple that goes to work for 50 hours a week, if they produce the same economic outcome that I can produce in a few hours, then really no one is more legitimate in that equation. If anything, I would think I'm more legitimate because I have done it more efficiently. I would also apply that then to the spending side or the consuming side so that if in comparison to someone else, I don't consume something because I want to take the time back or give my wife's time back. Let's say, for example, I decide to walk down to the the, the public pool 10 minutes away instead of spending $70,000 to put one in my backyard. I have actually taken my time back by removing a needless consumption item that would have been needless had I decided to put my wife to work or work that other time because we would never be there to go swimming, which is seems to be the case with the neighbors here who have bought the pool, but then don't use it. Some of this also might be from our acquired or inherited Protestant work ethic, which has long come from, you know, hundreds of years of saying, what's the proper role of people and their activities and the protestant work ethic is something that we try to assimilate people who come from other countries into having but they don't even necessarily have it Uh, thaddeus russell in his renegade history of the united states goes really deep into this i actually haven't read the chapters on it but i've heard him speak in length on it on the school sucks project and elsewhere such as the isaac morehouse show But the Protestant work ethic might be one of those drivers to say, look, guys, you have to constantly be being, you know, be busy with legitimate activity. We also, of course, get this from school. School is a big training ground to teach us this. And then we also, as school teaches us to be, to conform with each other, we have a lot of, you know, neighbor to neighbor or friend to friend or family member to family member pressure 
to be like other people. So what can be shocking is everyone in my neighborhood has strikingly similar consumption patterns about both that their busy patterns are the same and then what they want to own. And there's so there's this sort of homogeneity of the, the types of and numbers of cars, the types of entertainment things they have, such as again the swimming pool, how the lawn is maintained, onward and onward. There's very little creativity or diversity in how people spend their money, which I think is kind of interesting there because when you actually think of models of consumption that you might like, they are probably a lot different than just copying your neighbors. So what would some of these other consumption models be besides the busybody conformist consumerist? Well, one thing we could look at would be the inventor. Think about Alexander Graham Bell, who, or someone who just loves to invent new things, would likely see no value in ever looking acceptably busy and would have such a pressing charge to invent new things that all the time would go there, as well as all of their fascination. They probably wouldn't try to compensate the fact that they've burned all their time on then needless consumption goods at home. Not that they wouldn't enjoy luxuries, but they wouldn't feel like they had to jam in their personal life through owning nice things that they get to use for a short amount of time. I would say the same thing would go for the entrepreneur who is always operating against the clock. So even though they might be tremendously busy, they're not going to value simply looking busy. We always get to see neat uh, images of the eccentric tycoon. So if you actually internet, uh, if you internet, like as if that's a verb, if you Google William Buffett and Bill Gates, most of the pictures you'll find are them either sitting, eating jelly beans, playing euchre or some kind of card game, or they're at a restaurant eating hamburgers, french fries, and milkshakes. And perhaps this is all just uh, publicity and marketing to make them make us think that they're just like us. But really, if you have looked at, especially the myth of Warren Buffett, the consumption patterns are nothing compared to the wealth that he has. And he finds no comfort in simply consuming things for the sake of consuming things and probably no interest in being busy. And so these these types of people, you think people would want to model themselves after, even if they are stuck with a corporate job that requires them to be there a certain amount of time. The rapper or the rock star obviously consumes their time and their busyness, their busyness in a much different way, needing, just like the inventor, time to create music, hanging around the studio, finding creative inspiration, and then also probably partying or finding uh, beautiful young ladies to bed down. And, uh, to, of course, I've commented on the rapper's kind of funny consumption before in that they make wealth look like time is spent pouring champagne on pretty girls' bottoms in a hot tub. So I don't know what to do with that. There was a neat documentary of sorts on MTV about 15 years ago where they were showing Kid Rock's normal life. And what was funny is that he lives on this this normal uh, sort of suburban home in a Detroit suburb. And what he does for fun is he has all of his friends over 
they sit in their garage. It's just like a ranch house. So they sit in the garage at a folding table. They keep the garage door open and they play cards, drink Budweiser and smoke cigarettes, which was sort of like the exact thing that my parents did. So it was kind of neat saying this, this person consuming much like Warren Buffett, very ordinary things, despite having great fame and great wealth. We could say the artist, whether it's the fine artist, the painter, the sculptor, again, has no no need for looking legitimately busy. They will spend their time and their passion and their creativity, and will probably, the moment that runs out, will then go to, as at least the stereotype is, uh, enjoying their life and trying to find new inspiration. When you read biographies, biographies of famous athletes, we also see wildly different consumption and busybody patterns. Of course, they spend a lot of time working out and practicing their sport. But if you do this, if you Google LeBron James or Tom Brady, you'll be amazed at how much time they spend sleeping and how much time they spend on the massage table. Obviously, that is not to impress anybody with how busy they are, but rather a much different management of priorities in their lives. And then one of the, some of the ultimate way people sometimes imagine how they would be busy or spend their time and consume would be the spiritualist or the philosopher. And again, there's no need for looking legitimately busy in these consumption or life models, but instead spending, spending all the time that you can reading, synthesizing, thinking, and then communicating in meaningful ways. And at least the stereotype with these people is that they have very little need to comp- compensate for their lack of free time or their lack of engaged time with just having a lot of stuff in their house. Another kind of funny example of this sort of common consumption amongst very powerful people is if you ever watch TV shows about the president of the United States, two of them come to mind, which would be the West Wing, which had a Democratic president who was seemingly everything you could ever want in a president. He was wise. He valued people. He he had this great sense of justice, etc. Even though he was a regular politician, he was sort of this archetype of what what a, a quality virtuous politician could be and of course it was a great work of fiction because we know that this could never happen and the other one being house of cards which is on netflix these days which has a very corrupt president in power who murdered his way up to the top not to ruin anything if you haven't seen it yet but he is the embodiment of sort of the evil president or the the president who doesn't value human life and I, it's kind of interesting that they, the West Wing was on, I believe, during Clinton and Bush years, and the evil president in House of Cards is on during Obama. I would almost have thought those would have been flipped, that the appetite for a virtuous president might have been more now, or rather we would have reflected sort of a virtuous president, because it seems that Obama probably was the most popular of those three guys. But maybe the people... And the media sort of subconsciously think that we're actually in harder times. So that was just, that's kind of a tangent. That's the general view of the office of whether it's criminal versus heroic. But going on to the consumption pattern, what they'd like to do in these shows is both presidents love to sneak cigarettes on the back porch when nobody was looking or were just with their Secret Service people. They both 
uh, had these other very pedestrian consumption habits, such as uh, wanting to have booze late at night. And Frank Underwood in House of Cards, of course, uh, loves his barbecue so much that he even hires the barbecue chef to come work at the house. So this is almost like, I almost see this as sort of a subliminal desire, either amongst the producers of the show or the consumers of the show, to have this message that says there is no value in being a busybody and there's no value in opulent consumption because even the smartest and most powerful men in the world like these very simple luxuries. And that might be that might be taking it too far because obviously these, these guys live in the White House, have their own private plane. The level of wealth that they experience is, is over the top. Uh, if I have 10 important things to do in a day, it's 100% certain nothing important will get done that day. Okay, so if I have 10 important things to do in a day, I have zero things that are going to get done that day. You can't. If everything's important, nothing is important. On the other hand, I can usually handle one must-do item and block out my lesser behaviors for two to three hours a day. Really, if you can do it for two hours, that puts you in rarefied company. You are in the top, top, top 5% of people in the United States, certainly, I think. It doesn't take much to seem superhuman and appear successful to nearly everyone around you. In fact, you just need one rule, and that is this. What you do is more important than how you do everything else. And doing something well does not make it important. I'll repeat that. What you do is more important than how you do it, and doing something well does not make it important. If you consistently feel the counterproductive need for volume and doing lots of stuff, working harder, 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 but perhaps not with clear priorities, put the following bullets on a post-it note. Bullet number one, being busy is a form of laziness, lazy thinking and indiscriminate action. Being lazy, I'm sorry, (laughs) being lazy is a form of busyness. That's not true. Being busy is a form of laziness. Lazy thinking and indiscriminate action. Bullet number two, being busy is most often used as a guise for avoiding the few critically important but uncomfortable actions. Okay? Being busy is a form of laziness. Following up on that. And, And when, despite your best efforts, you feel like you're losing at the game of life, Remember this, even the best of the best feel this way sometimes. No one is 100% all the time. I haven't met them at least. When I'm in the pit of despair, I recall what the iconic writer Kurt Vonnegut said about his own process. And this is, this is, this is a, a, an absolute icon, a hero in the world of writing. One of the most famous of the most famous. And this is what he wrote. Quote, when I write, I feel like an armless, legless man with a crayon in his mouth end quote. Okay, so if the best of the best feel that way, you're allowed to feel that way too. Don't underestimate yourself. Don't overestimate the rest of the world. You are better than you think, and you are not alone. The ultimate enemy of busybodiness, if there's one voice in the world for this, is probably Tim Ferriss, who was the author of The 4-Hour Workweek, and the four-hour work week, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this show is very familiar with the book, but it's a part productivity, efficiency book. It's part an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial guide, part of adventure travel book, and probably a little bit of philosophy in there. And what Tim Ferriss did is he went from a 80-a-week sort of hustle, hustle-bustle, 
and did everything he possibly could to take control of his time back to get his work week down to 40 hours. And that meant employing a bunch of tools and employing a bunch of new processes like how decisions are made, you know, whether if there was a customer service problem and it could be solved for $100 or less, he would delegate the decision, hiring people to do aspects of his job, even very valuable aspects, and just really going, really putting his brain against the problem of not being busy and instead reclaiming time. And he, of course, did a great job. And I, I've, I took a lot from that. Uh, not just using his techniques, but actually going through that process of where you say, boy, do I want to take my time back. I do not want to be busy, even if it's the acceptable type of busy. And even looking at things that would constitute acceptable busyness and being able to recognize them as so. One thing that I've heard other people who have commented on Tim Ferriss, and as well as other guys like Derek Sievers and maybe Seth Godin and these other people who have found a different way to manage their time and their lives is they often forget that they started from a place where they were working the 80 hour week and doing everything themselves and probably even doing things that were in this acceptable busybody conformist mode. But it was at some point after they had built up enough life capital that they were able to take a moment, look back and reconfigure how they lived, how they consumed uh, both, uh, at least I know, uh, Sievers and Ferris live fairly stoic and non-consumer lives, as as they describe. Often, even trying to get their entirety of possessions, you know, into a suitcase or two, so that they can travel and not be tied down to the earthly possessions that most of us are stuck with. So I often wonder if people in the the sort of conformist, acceptable busybody, consumerist mode lose track earlier in their career when they actually do have to be actually busy to develop the life capital that could actually free them up from that trap and maybe just forget to see it and forget to get out of it. I don't know. I'm just sort of making this up as I go along. But that's what I sort of see. I've been listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast, and I'm about 12 episodes in. And of course, I've, I've read one of his books. And I've also read about probably between 8 and 12 other books, uh, some of them which I've discussed here, such as Think and Grow Rich, where they discuss the, the patterns of what successful people do. And what I see over and over again is that there's sort of, there's sort of two types almost that we, we hear about in these kind of wildly successful people there's this one sort of group and i actually even think they're the lesser of the smaller population of the two that gets up early and has this initial burst of creativity before they do anything else and they make sure that they either write or compose or or do whatever productive creativity right from the start even postponing their breakfast and then much later in the day they'll they'll get around to responsive stuff like email and whatnot and so this is, they, they put themselves into a creative mode instead of a reactive mode right away. The other, the other group typically sleeps later and then spends all morning on biology. Uh, be that, you know, a big popular one, of course, is taking a giant long walk so that you can sort of met out uh, your thoughts 
as well as uh, get some exercise, get your heart pumping. Other people exercise, other people meditate, other people do yoga. And then it's later, there's the, the productive time is, you know, in the afternoons or maybe in the evenings, but it's a much shorter workday than you would think of these millionaires and sort of intellectual celebrities. The one pattern that you never hear is the one that I see all my neighbors doing, which is uh, get up before you want to with your alarm clock, sort of scream at your kids to get ready for school, uh, usher them off to school, then you know have a 45-minute commute in your car, and then immediately do emails and meetings and sit and look busy and then be told when to eat your lunch and then not be able to nap in the afternoon when you're sleeping, et cetera, et cetera. You know, pick up your kids from latchkey at, at six, make them do their homework, you know, yell at everybody to eat, you know, catch a couple hours of television and then pass out just to do it all the next day. That's the one pattern of sort of using your time and consumption that you never hear about the highly successful people using. And I think that's interesting right there on its face because you it would seem to be pretty easy to do the analysis of if you're, let's just say you're just a regular person looking at your life. The first thing you would want to copy is probably not your neighbors, but probably the people who seem to be doing it the best and the most productive, most, most, the most productive and finding the most personal satisfaction. It would be interesting. I, I was trying to think of this if if I were either being interviewed for a job or as since I own my own company, if I were interviewing people, would and I, I had it was interviewing for not like a call center type job, but a job that required a great deal of leadership, creativity, uh, invention. You know those those type of really valuable people that can really transform a company or transform the the work that they do. And if I was sitting on the other side of the table, would it seem absolutely ridiculous if the person said, well, I'd really like you to hire me. Let me tell you about how I work. You know, I usually get up at 930. I do some stretching. I then, you know, I have some coffee and then I go walk for an hour and a half. I go swimming. Then I come back and that's when I start doing a little bit of email. I then take a break for lunch. I take a short nap and then I'm going to give you, you know, three awesome hours of my, my best mind. Most employers would probably find that to be wholesale insane, even though that actual work pattern is the one of many highly, you know, highly productive and imaginative people. So I would have, I would still even for myself have a hard time uh, listening to a prospect say that and not feel you know, just, just from my own conditioning of being schooled and working at big companies, I would still probably feel uneasy, but it probably would. If I just, if I think real hard, that would probably be some of the most perfect people you could hire to add value to a business. You like this? Very soft, soft, nice, soft. This alone should go on your private parts and into there not newspapers or anything else only this there are lots of it in here mm -hmm. and you sit down you do it and you just flush go ahead flush suppose you had a big lunch and it's filled up and you flush and nothing goes away 
it's still there. Suppose it's still there. I kept this for you. This here is a cookbook. So there are many different uh, types of foods that you can, uh, you can make. And I think you saw earlier for like fish, yeah. many different types of fish that you can make. Yeah, let's see if we get Okay. And that's it. Okay. And this other piece is not a toothbrush. This is for cleaning. Okay, make it nice and white. And when you finish, rinse it off. And you hide it so your guests don't see it. Okay, I'm going to read a little quote from the 19th century's most favorite racist of all times, Charles Darwin. And it's about Africans. And I'll I'll try to make this fit in with today's theme in a minute, but this quote doesn't directly help the point I'm trying to make, but I've, I've always found it kind of fascinating. So here it goes. Since the dawn of history, the black man has owned the continent of Africa, rich beyond the dream of poet's fancy, crunching acres of diamonds beneath his bare black feet, and yet has never picked one up from the dust until a white man showed him its glittering light. His land swarmed with powerful and docile animals, yet he never dreamed a harness, cart, or sled. A hunter by necessity, he never made an axe, spear, or arrowhead worth preserving beyond the moment of its use. He lived as an ox, content to graze for an hour. In the land of stone and timber, he never sawed a foot of lumber, carved a block, or built a house save of broken sticks and mud. With league on league of ocean strand and miles of inland seas four thousand years he watched the surface ripple under the wind heard the thunder of the surf on his beach the howl of the storm over his head gazed on the dim blue horizon calling him to worlds that lie beyond and yet he never dreamed a sail that clip i played earlier with the learning about how to use toilet paper and a toilet brush and a cookbook was from a great documentary that I highly recommend called The Lost Boys. Nothing to do with the Kiefer Sutherland movie. And if you do track it down, I did find it on YouTube. I'm sure it's probably on Netflix and Amazon as well. Uh, do not get confused with the 60-minute the special under the same name. It's the same story, but it's all feel-good, whereas the documentary is much more intense and tells a much more complete story. What it is is about refugees from the Sudanese war have to flee and they end up in a camp in Kenya where they basically have a subsistence living of living in you know lean-tos and uh, very basic food needs and they spend most of their time playing soccer and enjoying the sunshine and there's a program that has been implemented there where they take a list of these lost boys these people who don't have homes and they put them on a plane and they send them to different cities in the United States where they then have to pick up an American lifestyle. So that scene you just heard was actually the landlord. These guys have never seen electric lights before. They've never seen a television before. They've never seen, even, even when they get to the building, they're amazed that there's a second floor on a building they had never seen a second floor before and of course that was the man taking them through have they've never seen toilet paper or a toilet or a toilet brush or a, you know an electric stove onward and, and etc 
as the it tracks i think i don't know like a half dozen of these boys and they're all given jobs they can speak english and they're given jobs and the curious thing that happens is most of them end up hating the the work that they get and desperately long for back when they don't have any consumption that was notable even though they were amazed by the the amount of consumption that they were capable of in the united states they are so thoroughly unimpressed with what it takes to actually have it that they most of them sort of get depressed and sort of long for their life back of playing soccer and uh you know you know sitting in the sun only one of them this one guy who gets a job at hardy's seems to take a shine to to doing this and he actually excels at his job makes friends and eventually even develops a, a social life beyond the lost boys that he lives with so what's kind of interesting there is what we can tell is that the consumption pattern might very well be learned and since they had learned to live an easy life of you know almost non-consumption of anything below you know just above food and some basic clothes that they found the the idea of being endlessly busy to be almost disgusting and of course our children here in the US are trained basically from a very young age, either preschool or kindergarten, that there's high praise in being highly busy, uh, set to someone else's schedule, and to match that with what can I get, what can I consume. So I'm not actually advocating that the, the Lost Boys, the Sudanese, are in the right camp, because that wouldn't work for me. And, you know, they, they probably were... were deprived of some of the, the the marvel that can come with with consumption and productive labor but you can sort of see that maybe it's there's somewhere in between one and then two is that the conditioning we have as children probably dictate whether we become busybody conformist or or take a different path So that was the podcast for today. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you got something out of it. Hopefully it wasn't too repetitive and not too thoughtless. Uh, Before I leave, though, I did two podcasts ago promise that I would explain why my kids think Ron Paul is my father. And it's really not that interesting of a story. But my kids have almost never seen their grandfather, my father, maybe two or three times in their entire life before he passed. And I had this great picture of me and the good Dr. Paul from a fundraiser he did in New Hampshire. And that was put amongst the family photos. So they just started saying that he was my dad. And I didn't bother to correct them. In this podcast, I've been pretty critical of the word or critical of the concept of consumerism or a consumerist or someone who puts too much importance on purchasing and using things. I just wanted to clear up that I am by no means a vow of poverty monk. I am an incredible consumer. I love consumption. I love consumer goods. I love buying stuff. I love using stuff. I love having stuff. Uh, My thought, though, is that I 
also really appreciate and value my time. And I recognize the difference between having one versus the other. And sometimes it is an either or choice. And I just like to be very thoughtful about that. So anyway, that was the podcast. Thanks for listening. Keep tuned. If you can give me a good review on iTunes, tell your friends. It's uh, the podcast is slowly growing. And it'd be a lot of fun if more people got to have a listen. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Their bombs onto her.